0: Women are often told that our hormones are responsible for the way we react to and experience the world around us. Trust me, nothing winds me up more than being told I'm hormonal or that my hormones are more responsible for my emotions than my brain. But hormones do play a huge role in the way our brains operate. So what's really going on up there? Today, we're going to explore our brains with a neuroscientist and really get to the bottom of this relationship between our brains and our hormones so we can better understand ourselves and our bodies. This episode is made possible by the support of Sleeping Duck. If you need a new mattress or bed, you can get the absolute best quality for comfort and your back while saving thousands. It's called the Sleeping Duck. Ask your friends about it. You buy it online, it's delivered to your door. It comes with a fully adjustable comfort system that allows you to tweak the firmness independently for you and your partner, all in your own home. And while we're talking Sleeping Duck, check out their bed too. It's built with 50 kilos of structural grade S235 steel. That's a steel beam under each individual sleeper to prevent back damaging mattress sag. Sleeping Duck sets a new standard for sleep and being manufacturer direct, it is incredible value. For your risk-free 100-night trial, visit sleepingduck.com. Sleeping Duck, one giant leap for your sleep. Now, my guest today is Dr. Sarah Mackay. She's a neuroscientist and the author of the Women's Brain Book, The Neuroscience of Health, Hormones and Happiness. In this conversation, we cover what's going on in your brain through all stages of your hormone cycle, throughout your monthly cycle, but also what's going on in your brain in puberty, in pregnancy, and in menopause is really interesting. And I learned so much. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. I began by asking Sarah how long she's actually been studying the brain for.
1: Oh, wow. (laughs) I'm 48. (laughs) And my undergraduate degree was in neuroscience. So I think we may have just hit, is that 20 years or 30 years? Uh, 30 years! What? (laughs) So yeah, first year university in a psychology lecture. Now they teach this stuff at school because I've got teenage sons and I know they do neurobiology and like year nine science. But back in the early 90s (laughs) neuroscience wasn't really a thing (laughs) and so I kind of came across first year psychology lecture we kind of did the biology of psychology and my mind was blown when I learned about neurons and synapses and um, I so I switched universities (laughs) Um, I was I wasn't living in New Zealand I grew up in New Zealand so I moved universities from Canterbury University in Christchurch to Otago University in Dunedin it's only about four hours away because they had the country's only uh, neuroscience degree. And so I was the second year of students to kind of go through that. So I'm like the this OG neuroscientist. If that is so
0: cool. <laughs> you are oh, absolutely. Of course you can. You've put in that much time. you got to claim it now. So tell yeah. me, how much research is there into women's brains in particular? Oh, that is such a
1: cool question because, you know, I wrote this book, that was published in 2018 and first kind of the the idea sparked off in late 2016, Um, it was actually a question that my agent, my book agent or publisher at the time asked me, Um, she was like, what have you written for an audience that's resonated? And I said, oh, look, I once read this article on menopause and brain fog and, um, you know, but we didn't really know, this is 2016, we didn't know a lot about menopause in the brain at that point. Um, And then she asked me a couple of other questions, and I said, you know, it would be really interesting to explore sort of women's health through the lens of neurobiology and look at things like periods and the pill and pregnancy and menopause and why girls and women were likely to have anxiety and depression. And I used to say (laughs) rather disingenuously that there's so much neuroscience out there to explore, I just hadn't (laughs) occurred to me to look at women's health research. Through that lens but it turns out there wasn't actually a lot yeah. there really to be you know understood and but I have seen since that time really sort of 2016 2017 so we're kind of really only talking about the last five years we have seen this real upsurge in research on women's health women's brain health or aspects of women's biology um, which influence the brain that wasn't kind of there five or six years ago so we've had the first studies of how the brain changes during pregnancy the first studies of how the brain changes during menopause we've just started to gather data on the oral contraceptive pill and the brain at different points in the lifespan we've just started to get information and even in the last year or two about things like menopause hormone therapy in the brain Um, so it's a pretty new field but for me it's exciting because the research that's coming through is meaningful. It's it's applicable. And I think, interestingly, it's being driven largely by women who have almost kind of worked their way up the ranks in neuroscience and are now able to kind of apply for the research grants because you've got to have the money to do the research and sort of channel the research down those paths. I think it's probably also worth pointing out neuroscience and psychology and the health sciences, medicine, have always had, particularly in the younger, the early career years, gender parity. There's, I mean, in the early '90s, when I was at neuro, doing neuroscience, there were as many girls as there were guys in my classes. When I went to Oxford to do my PhD, three of the five of us on my funding scholarship were girls. So, wow. it, but but so people often talk about women in STEM, and there's you know it's male dominated. It's not in some aspects of STEM. But what we've needed is the women to like rise up the ranks and be able to start just sort of guiding the research funding to be kind of the senior heads of labs. And it's really only my generation of women and, and sort of a bit younger than me, me being Gen X, have are have, have kind of starting to, to drive the research in these directions. And it's really interesting if you think about pregnancy as, as part of this Um it was just kind of seen as irrelevant and niche. There's more brain imaging studies done looking at left-handedness and right-handedness than looking to see what happens during pregnancy. Oh, but let's not despair. The tide is turning and the work that is being done is is extraordinary. It's almost like kind of reaching this kind of critical mass of scientists and technology and interest. Um, so it's a really exciting time to be following along.
0: Yeah and we are super grateful for your work like honestly because a lot of the research that's coming out now is actually challenging a lot of the conventional thinking that we've held around hormones and brain health which I'm (laughs) really excited to get into. (laughs) Yeah right which I'm super excited to get into and but before we get into that can you tell me how important is it that we even have a small amount of knowledge of neuroscience and how our hormones impact us regardless of gender? Oh,
1: look, I think it's incredibly important. I mean, it's a pretty, you could, you know, have a very toxic conversation these days about sex and gender (laughs) and biology. Um, So I think I try and approach this by looking at the biology, by looking at the facts. (laughs) There's some paths of conversation we could head down which can get really controversial but I think when it comes to let's just women's health as a safe space (laughs) we think about that we have grown up and as much as we like to think we've thrown off these gender stereotypes the stereotypes of our reproductive health um, and its relationship to our brain to our cognitive capacity to our emotional resilience is a pretty negative story and I often say You enter puberty and your hormones kind of kick off and then they cycle every month. You go through pregnancy and you get these sky high levels of hormones and then you enter the menopause and they kind of drop off. So it doesn't matter whether they're going up or down, they're high or they're low. We blame them for whenever anything goes wrong and that's (laughs) not how hormones in the brain interact. We're kind of held in this, this kind of mythical sort of gender stereotype state that our reproductive health in some way harms our cognitive capacity. Um, and I think that's incredibly damaging. Um, but it's a really interesting because people want to hold on to that quite tightly mm. as well. I guess there's a lot of identity or, or validation perhaps that comes from, well, my brain made me do it, or it's my hormones instead of kind of exploring more broadly about Perhaps what's going on in, in your world, because <laughs> um, there's there's a lot of voices in the crowd of what influences your brain and you know how you think and how you feel and how you behave. Hormones are just one of those little signals which which the brain receives. So I think yeah. it's really important to understand that because it gives us interestingly a lot more agency than you may think if we simply lean on this old fashioned idea women's reproductive hormones are just damaging our brains because that's kind of what the messaging is out there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I cannot wait to get into this. So let's start at the beginning. Mm-hmm. How different are male and female brains? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs>
1: know, you could just if sum this while. up in a neat
0: little answer. <laughs> um, I
1: think there's, there's, there's a bit of a saying that um, not as different as some may like but more different than others may hope. Um, There are biological differences between male and female brains in the same way that there are biological differences between male and female bodies so there are many aspects of our biology which are very very similar so we've got hearts that beat and blood vessels which carry blood and lungs which breathe air we've got eyes which you know see the, perceive the world we've got you know arms and legs and five fingers on each hand so there are many aspects of male and female biology which is essentially identical but then there are some aspects of biology particularly particularly post-puberty in which our biology differs and it's you know stating the obvious you know we develop our secondary sexual characteristics women develop breasts we start to menstruate men have facial hair they grow really tall and muscly and big and hairy and I have two teenage boys and (laughs) oh my goodness (laughs) the my 14 year old's nearly six foot four my 13 year old is taller than me talk about tall and muscly and hairy Um, it's, it's like watching a nature documentary, (laughs) So you know, there are aspects of our biology, which are different. And and when we kind of zoom in and and consider our brains, the same is, is the case. So there are many aspects of our brain biology, which are essentially identical. If we were to open up to skulls, a male and a female skull and look inside, we wouldn't be able to tell by looking at the brain, which biological sex that person was. Um, but if you were to start to kind of dig down a little bit deeper and perhaps look at some aspects of some parts of the brain under the microscope you may see tiny differences which are, are often due to reproductive biology so females <laughs> females have circuitry that's involved with the regulation of ovulation of course males don't have that 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 sort of same circuitry females have, neurons which kind of flourish and grow new little spines like little buds on a tree in spring and then sort of shrink away again and they wh- that waxes and wanes in response to estrogen waxing and waning during the menstrual cycle. Um, males don't have that same waxing and waning so you don't sort of see that same difference there and that's this kind of looking at aspects of biology or, or sort of what, what you can see if you look at the brain. Um, if you were to sort of zoom out and look at aspects of Thinking or feeling or behavior, it gets a whole lot more complex and there's a whole Mm -hmm. lot more overlap between the two. Um, Perhaps the most well described, but not necessarily well understood, difference in terms of cognition, where we would see males, biological males, showing a slight, on average, you know if there was a test they might score you know a few points higher than the average woman would be this idea of rotating a 3d object in your mind's eye like here's an object from this angle what you know what would it look like from another angle and choose the appropriate image if anyone's ever done that kind of test the average guy is better than that than the average girl however there's plenty of females that are really great at that and plenty of males that are useless Um, if we were to look at tests of verbal memory, so remembering lists of words, the average female would be slightly better than that than the average male. But again, there's plenty of overlap. So it gets really, really hard to say this is a male trait and this is a female trait that's based in some biology of cognition. Um, And then when it comes to things like thinking or feeling or other kinds of behaviours, again, it's, it's that much harder to kind of tease out. And then if we were to kind of look at the big picture of that, let's look at this 3D rotation because that's pretty reliable, reasonably reliable. Um, What's the source of that? Is that due to male Mm. testosterone? (laughs) Is that due to socialization of little boys who may play with Lego a whole lot more than little girls? Is that due to guys feeling more confident, you know, sitting that particular test than girls? We don't really know. There's so many factors. And I I said, here's your brain, what are the influences from your bottom-up biology, hormones and everything else in your body, the outside-in world, and that includes society and culture and the people that you're interacting with and the environment you live in, and then top-down. We're making meaning constantly of the messages in our body in the context of the outside-in world, and they become embedded as beliefs or expectations. And that's just as important in terms of shaping how we think and feel as a single hormone.
0: Mm, so interesting. There's so much goes, that goes into it. And so mm. you say that the the first thousand days when our brain is being formed is vital. What's happening in those first thousand days, uh, in particular for women, and how is our brain being formed? Yeah, well, that's the first thousand days is really from
1: conception through. So I, I, I think it's up until you're about two and a, two and a half. Forgive me for my terrible maths. Um, <laughs> so we're, we're talking about the nine months here of conception, and then those kind of first year or two of infancy. And we obviously, when you're sort of in utero, as we say. The vast majority of brain development is guided by biology, by genes telling neurons where to go and how to connect up. But the the shaping and sculpting of the brain in utero is also influenced in part by the biological health of the mother. So you want a really healthy, fit mum. But in some way, the you know the the, the baby's brain development will proceed kind of as mother nature intended or as evolution intended and then you have this little baby the moment it's born into the world is kind of thrust into this world where every interaction that that baby has with other people around it and the environment in which it lives how it's raised particularly during those first couple of years is vitally important and we're understanding so much more kind of about the trajectory of brain development which sort of starts day zero in utero and I mean it goes on for a lifespan but particularly we would think about infant childhood adolescent brain development kind of goes through until until your 20s but what's laid down in those first few years is really important particularly the relationships that caregivers usually Mm -hmm. the mother but also the father or the other you know Parents, the other kind of allo parents that sort of help shape and care for that baby. Because when you've got a newborn baby, it can do two things: it can cry and it can be cute. (laughs) There, it's two (laughs) sort of social cues. It's two ways of communicating. And adults are typically kind of drawn in to, you know, look after babies, and they cry and we pick them up. But we have to regulate every aspect of their their biology, their physiology, their, their their neurology. We have to keep them warm. We have to keep them fed. We have to keep them dry we are doing absolutely everything for that baby and that baby will then hopefully, with a lot of love and care and attention, grow up healthy. But we understand now looking at longitudinal studies of childhood into adulthood that what happens particularly within those first two years of development, particularly that child's social development and care, has you know, sort of snowballing effects through the lifespan. So children, the most extreme examples are children that are perhaps, um, and and the, the, the studies that have been done and followed most closely are those of children who were abandoned and brought up in Romanian orphanages. So they were fed and had their nappies changed, but essentially they had no human interaction or love or nurturing, no to and fro, no kind of synchrony, you no know, kind of conversation and love and care and nurturing, and those children, even if they were adopted in later childhood, have serious cognitive, emotional, mental health and physical health issues sort of, you know, in their narrow, in their kind of 30s, and it's still, still very clear the damage that was done in those early years. I think um, one way to kind of think about it is that concept that you probably remember from high school science that, um, you know, like organisms adapt to the environment in which they live. Maybe you talk about the sort of the stratification of a forest or, um, you know, giraffes being able to eat the top of the tree because they have long necks. Mm-hmm. That You know, organisms adapt to their environment. And little human babies, when they're born, are born so immature that they will just adapt to the environment in which they are born into. And if they're born into chaos and lack of safety, lack of care, lack of attention, they will just think, well, this is the the world I'm born into and I will, you know, respond. My brain will continue to develop and my nervous system will develop assuming that all of the world and all of life will be chaotic and stressful and unpredictable. And that's a very Mm. different brain that is going to develop in those first few years versus a brain that's developing, that's being loved and nurtured and cared for and kept safe and being responded to and interacted with. So, you know, we've got the big picture there. We're now just at the point where we're sort of starting to go in and um, the advent of brain imaging really only in the last couple of decades has enabled us to be able to go in and take a look at what is happening in those little brains in those first couple of years of life that that can determine these lifelong trajectories. There's a researcher in New Zealand who, Richie Porton, who um, heads up the Dunedin study, which is a longitudinal study. That I was always jealous I wasn't included because it's people who a couple of couple of you know 100 kilometers away from where I was born um who are all just turning 50 and I'm 48 they um Damn. and he said we've under and the biggest takeaway he's got is we're underestimated the importance of childhood I think we're starting to understand that now I should say yeah. I didn't answer your question about male versus female the difference is yeah, you know like the, these kind of in utero, we do see differences in that male bodies and brains are kind of influenced by by the production of testosterone in utero from the, the you know the, the baby boy's testes, um, and that does kind of shape a, a male brain ready to be reactivated by the hormones of puberty. Um, female little baby un, unborn female brains. Um, ovaries don't produce estrogen and utero so you've kind of got the males producing the testosterone And the females just carrying on. You know, there's this bit of a feminist argument, should you say, by default or by destiny. So the females just kind of develop without the influence of testosterone. There's no influence of estrogen instead. And then you've got these brains, which are essentially identical when they're born. There may be this sort of slight biological sex difference from the influence of testosterone between newborn baby boys and girls, but it's very, very hard to detect and it's not reliable. And then those little brains, sort of develop along until puberty hits and then hormones of puberty don't just change our bodies they change our brains and the brains of adolescents go into these stages of quite extreme plasticity in terms of social emotional and cognitive development Um, but interestingly the testosterone and the estrogen guide both brains through adolescence, you know, from puberty through adolescence into adulthood, um, it just seems that you needed one of of those hormones. But those, you know, the the male brain was primed by the testosterone at birth, the female brains were primed by nothing, and then the the hormones of puberty are essential in guiding those the, the kind of appropriate development of those brains. So it's not just bodies that change during adolescence, it's brains which change. But everything else around those brains in the world around us is changing too. So it's not just the hormones. The hormones have kind of opened this window of plasticity and which brains will respond.
0: So as you say that puberty is that first kind of huge, you know, up curve of these hormones that our brains Mm. will experience, what is going Mm. on in our brains as women during puberty? Yeah, that's a really
1: that's a really good question. Um, so it, as I said, males testosterone, females estrogen, progesterone doesn't really matter. What happens is the brain opens up this sort of window of plasticity, and plasticity essentially means it's really easy to be shaped and sculpted by either the world around us or, or by signals signals from our body. So when we enter female puberty, our brains um, The the parts of our brains involved with things like moving our bodies and seeing and hearing and um, regulating kind of basic body biology are pretty much set, not set in Mm. stone, but they're not going to change. But our social brain in particular goes into quite a state of readiness to interact. It's almost like when a little baby learns to talk, its brain is so primed to learn language, it just learns language just by default. It's really, really easy. When you're 20, it's really hard to learn a foreign language or or a language other than your mother tongue because your your language center isn't plastic. Teenage brains go into the state of plasticity where they are ready to absorb the world around them, particularly the social world. And what we literally see if we were to look at brains we see that the social parts of the brain, the brain, the parts of the brain involved with reading social cues, interacting with others, empathy, theory of mind, those parts of the cortex actually start to refine and streamline. Um, and that refinement and streamlining is guided by the social interactions that we have. So it's really important um that the we have I don't want to say the right kind (laughs) and I don't mean that in any moralistic way but we have appropriate and the right types of social interactions because that's what's guiding that plastic development and we literally see and this sounds really freaks people out we literally see parts of the cortex getting slightly thinner people think oh my god the brain's shrinking that's why teenagers are the way they are which is just ridiculous (laughs) They're they're actually at their peak of learning by experience they're not half developed they're yeah. at the peak of at their, their peak of prowess um, and what we see often in the brain is this idea that less is more when brain connections refine and sculpt that it's kind of ridding themselves of superfluous connections and embedding the kind of information that we need to then carry on to be you know adults um, as, as we kind of move through the trajectory of our lives um, i think it's interesting if we look at adolescence which you know is the teenage years essentially um, in terms of women's health issues um, because obviously we've got this sort of cycling of hormones you get your first period and then you know if you're healthy and well typically you know it cycles monthly from from then on Um, there's a lot again this is really when these your reproductive health having some negative impact on you sort of ideas start yeah. to emerge. And it's also when we do start to see the, the, the emergence of anxiety and depression, um, internalising disorders in girls and often externalising disorders in, in boys. Um, but you can't say it was the hormones because you've got the, all this influence from all these different, you know, your body's changing, your perception of your body's changing, your social group's changing, your perception of how your social group perceives your changing body is changing. Um, you're moving out of the kind of the nest of the family and you're starting to interact with, you know, people in a new way. You've entered high school, you're being challenged cognitively in ways that you never have before. So, you know, there's a lot going on. Um, mm-hmm. To simply default back to what's the hormones is, is, is not necessarily um, the final answer or the only kind of reason for why young people sometimes find that that transition a, a, a difficult one
0: and so you talk there about the menstrual cycle do mm. we see changes in the be- brain throughout the menstrual cycle when different levels of hormone are present in our bodies
1: yeah we do at a sort of a super microscopic level in terms of I said earlier when you've got high levels of estrogen you get little buds on neurons sort of flourishing and then retracting mm. But there's a bit of a U-shaped curve. If you've got a lot, they'll also retract. So it's like a little bit, the right amount, too much. It's a bit like kind of a Goldilocks situation. Um, I, I was really interested in this when I was writing the book. I went in with this idea of, well, I'll look at the menstrual cycle because we've got these regular monthly shifts of hormones when you've got high estrogen and ovulation, progesterone after that, but then that drops down before your period does that change cognition in any way? And I was particularly interested in this idea of how our reproduction affects our ability to think, make decisions, hold down jobs, you know, all the kind of stuff that all women do. Um, And I was heartened and interested, but there was a reasonable amount of of research out there um, and there's certainly no consistent evidence that our hormonal state influences how we think, which is really good news. You would, you know... (laughs) Great, you know we can carry go go forth and conquer the conquer the world, ladies, because you know it's not changing how you think in any way. Um, some studies of cognition show a little bit of an increase in some cognitive tests at this time of the month, but others might show a little decrease at that time of the month. There's certainly no consistent pattern here, um, which I think is good because it means there's no nothing necessarily predictable that we can say emotions are something different and i went into this thinking well i personally have never felt pms i didn't grow up in a family that talked about it which i also think is interesting and important um, because many aspects of our our subjective emotional states are also influenced by expectation and culture um so i went in thinking okay well surely there's going to be data out there showing shifts of hormones influence emotional state because PMS is a thing and this is perhaps the study I've talked about most from the book Mm. um, is I found a a, a meta-analysis which gathers data from lots of different places looking at reported prevalence of PMS around the world so Um, you know, what women who put their hands up and say, yes, I get emotional and cranky and angry and moody before my period. And it was fascinating because it was stratified by country. So in France, 10% of women put their hands up. In Spain, just over the border, about 30% of women put their hands up. Um, In Asia, some parts of North America, it's kind of around 50% of women say, yep, I suffer from PMS. And then really interestingly, if you go to countries where women – face oppression, face strong gender stereotyping, have less agency and autonomy. Iran was the example here, 90% of women put their hands up and said they have PMS. So you've got French women 10%, Iranian women 90%, everyone else falling in between. There is not that much biological difference between French woman and Iranian women such that PMS would be so prevalent in one country and nearly invisible in another. I thought there has to be something else going on. So I followed up with the woman's health psychiatrist Sarah Romans who's looked into this and did a study looking at um, how hormonal state, day of the month, influenced emotional outcomes. But women were blinded to the fact that the study was on PMS. They were just told mood and daily life, hormone, you know, menstrual day, what's your mood? Here's lots of positive emotions, here's lots of negative emotions, here's neutral emotions. Don't just give one, one positive emotion to choose from and 25 negative like some studies do, as if that's all we are capable of feeling. Um, It also asked about stress, physical health, well-being and social support. And when all the data was crunched, (laughs) it was more like kind of French women. There was about 10% of women showed a clear variation of um, mood based on menstrual day, but 90% of women didn't. Instead, mood was far more likely to be determined by sense of well-being, how stressed they felt, but most significantly by how socially supported they were. So again, there's a strong social cultural influence in terms of how we perceive our moods and emotions and what we attribute them to. That's not to say if you feel moody before your period that I'm saying you're making it up and it's all in your head. It's more so what are we attributing a particular mood to on any particular day based on the kind of the stories we've been brought up with. If you're brought up in 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 a world where You don't have much agency, you don't have much autonomy, you don't have much choice or say in things. You know, perhaps you're far more likely to attribute a negative mood to hormones. This is kind of the feminist take on it, because you're kind of allowed. But in a country where you feel like you have agency and autonomy and you haven't grown up with strong stories about PMS, and that's the kind of house I grew up in, um, you're not looking to blame hormones for anger. Maybe you're pissed off because your husband didn't take the bins out. And mine didn't last night because it was in Singapore and I had to do it myself. (laughs) So I think it's really interesting the knowledge of neuroscience comes in is we hold on so tightly to this idea that our reproductive health has a negative impact on our emotions and our mood and our brain. And the science doesn't support that. What the science is trying to do is encourage us to look beyond this one hook that was being placed in front of us to hang our hat on. It's hormones, baby. And that's it. It's, hey, there could be a whole, it could be lack of social support. Well, guess what? You can do something about that because you have agency. You can put strategies and social frameworks and architecture in place. You can't necessarily do much about your hormones. There are yeah. women who are super sensitive because there was still the 10% even who were blinded. Interestingly, if you unblind that study, you do it again, say to the people it's on PMS you'll get much, much higher rates of reported PMS than
0: if you don't tell wow. them that's what it's on.
1: Expectations so are so,
0: so, so important. Oh yeah, they really are. We did an interview with um David Robson. He's a science journalist oh. in the UK and he wrote a book about the expectation effect and some of oh, the research that oh, he pulled yes, out. Oh, yeah. it's really good. I'm going to send you the episode and I'll put it in the show notes in case anybody oh, cool. hasn't heard it oh, because it is yeah. incredible. He's really very, very impressive guy and the book yeah. just blew my mind. Um, well, I but, think that when it comes to women's health, that is an enormous
1: part of it and we see it with in pregnancy with baby brain, we see it um, during menopause with how women react to symptoms such as hot flashes or hot flushes and that's not to say – that women are not experiencing perhaps overwhelm and, you know, that kind of the mental load inability to attend because there's too much going on during early motherhood or hot flashes during um, menopause. But it's the meaning we make of them mm-hmm. that is really important and what we expect that health experience to be like. Um, and so that's, you know, kind of, We've, I said we've got so many signals coming into our brain. Um, it's not just the biological signal, which is overriding and determining everything. You know, how we're approaching that and the meaning we're making of it is as important in determining a health outcome.
0: So what effect does the pill have on our brain? What research is there out there towards this? Yeah, I'm a big pill fan, actually. Um,
1: particularly now I'm 48. I'm like, give me all the estrogen I can get, however <laughs> I can get it. Um, I think we do again. The pill has a bad rap, particularly online these days, in terms of um, side effects, which I think are overblown. In terms of, you look historically how much freedom it gave gave women reproductive freedom. I don't think we can deny that. Um, what is really interesting is if you look at the let's look at the data, let's take the kind of emotion and the hype and carry on out of it. Some really large studies, million women studies, studies with a million women included in them have come out of um, Scandinavian countries where they have amazing socialised healthcare and they gather all of the data and so they have all of the information to kind of assess. Not a study of three women or five women or a few women on social media, a million women. Um, And studies have looked at Let's look at women who are on the pill, compare them to women who are not on the pill, who is more likely to be diagnosed with depression. And the difference between, a that you've got a 1,000 women on the pill, over the course of a year you might get, and I think the data was something like, say, five women per year might get diagnosed with clinical depression, get treated with uh, antidepressants. You look at women not on the pill, it's around two or three women being diagnosed. So the increase was around one or two women per 1,000 per year. So, the difference isn't actually that big. There's an increased risk, but the absolute numbers are minuscule. What the studies have done then very cleverly have gone in and they've kind of sort of separated them all out by age. And it turns out if you look at women over sort of 20, 25, so adult women, um, there isn't really any difference in terms of diagnosis of depression whether you're on the pill or not. The difference emerges during the teenage years, during adolescence, right when those pubertal hormones are critical for the normal brain development, normal adolescent brain development. And the increased numbers that you saw of young women being diagnosed with depression when they're on the pill were, 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 that, were, were bigger. But they weren't, we're not talking about 50%, here, yeah, 50 women per, per 100, or we're, we're kind of talking maybe sort of 10 or 15 teenagers per 1,000 Being diagnosed with depression when they're on the pill versus sort of five or six who are not. So again, the absolute numbers are small, but that seems to be where the data is skewed. But you know, adolescence is a tricky time. Why? Mm. And the younger those, the younger the girls were, the thirteen or fourteen year olds were, that much more vulnerable again to being diagnosed with depression when they're on the pill than the 16, 17, 18-year-olds. Can we say, oh look, that's to do purely with that trajectory of normal brain development. Have we disrupted that normal brain development in some way by putting girls on higher levels of estrogen without the monthly cycling? Or was depression, did depression come by some other kind of you know social means whereby while a 13 or 14 year old girl is she sexually active and perhaps in a position where she's more emotionally vulnerable and so therefore more likely to develop depression it's really hard to tease that out even with the with these large numbers so i don't think we can safely say the pill causes depression at all but some people are more vulnerable to side effects and I don't think that means the pill is evil and nasty, and no one should ever take it, because um, I've had great success—great success—you know, you know, m- you know mod- modifying my fertility and now kind of keeping the estrogen levels up nice and high um, at my advanced age. Um, <laughs> it's really just about looking at looking at the numbers and then having a really good, clear understanding of your own signs and symptoms, and having a really good, cool, calm woman's health. Or, GP that you have a relationship with that you can go and kind of talk through the risks and the benefits. And, you know, sometimes changing brands helps. Mm. Um, I don't think that we should ever, ever underestimate how useful it is to not get pregnant when you don't want to. Because <laughs> oh,
0: that's a yeah. outcome. Yes, yeah, it absolutely can be. So the flip side of that is obviously pregnancy, another Mm. huge hormone surge in our lives. You've touched on this a little bit, but is baby brain a real thing? (laughs) I've just written my second book. It's called Baby Brain. (laughs) (laughs) Baby
1: Brain. I'll tell you the title of the book, and this might give you an idea. Baby Brain, the surprising neuroscience of how pregnancy and motherhood sculpt our brains and change our minds for the better. So baby brain, this kind of colloquial definition of forgetfulness and absent-mindedness during pregnancy and motherhood um, is a bit of a paradox because four out of five women will say, I had baby, I have baby brain during pregnancy or early motherhood. Forget things, can't remember what I'm doing, make mistakes, et cetera, et cetera. But there's a paradox because you bring these women into the research lab, sit them down, give them a host of cognitive tests, and motherhood, we're not finding any cognitive decline whatsoever. So women are subjectively saying, I feel like I'm losing my mind. Objectively, the scientists are saying, but you're not. And that's really interesting because women are quite resistant to letting go of that. Pregnancy is slightly different because during the third trimester of pregnancy, when we see these enormous equivalent to the shifts that we see in adolescence with structural changes in the social brain, particularly in pregnant women, in the third trimester, Some studies find some women show a tiny little drop in a cognitive test score, but it's not clinical. It's not cognitive decline. They just might score one point less than when they weren't pregnant or compared to a bunch of non pregnant women. But not all studies find that. And other studies have come in and looked at what they call ecologically relevant memory tests. Let's just see if women are really good at remembering stroller brands or nappies or, you know, bottom you know, red bottom cream for babies. You know, they test all these kinds of rash cream, I should call it. Um, ecologically relevant baby-related items and, and, and the third trimester women are really good at remembering that stuff versus non-pregnant women. So some studies find enhanced memory. If we look at non-human mammals, mothers um, get better at doing what they do. So sheep get better at sense of smell and recognising their lamb by smell. Animals that need to kind of gather like nuts, they get better at finding their way through a maze. Animals that have to hunt get much better at predation because Mother Nature wants to ensure survival of the offspring. And it would be, no, I, I, I can't make sense of how Mother Nature and humans would make us stupid. <laughs> <laughs> That's not what has happened. <laughs> We've got this paradox. We've got the subjective the subjective feeling. Of losing your mind and the objective scientific reality what's probably sitting in there some studies have kind of gone in again expectation is a big thing enormous I didn't have baby brain but I didn't even know it was a thing never heard of it so I didn't Mm. expect to forget and I didn't Um, so we've got that we've got uh, and that's my again my little anecdote Um, (laughs) we've got this strong cultural message about that our reproductive health is in some way damaging our minds Um, It's hard to to let go of that. Um, So there's this enormous expectation that you will forget, and you probably will because early motherhood is really hard. There is a lot going on, and what you remember and what you forget depends on your ability to pay attention, filter things in or out. And Mm. when you've got a new baby and you leave the house and you forget a nappy, it is a catastrophe. So you are likely to judge yourself very, very severely and harshly. Other studies have gone in and looked and found that there is a correlation between subjectively rating your performance as poor, I've got baby brain, I'm useless, I'm forgetful, I can't get anything done, I'm just not coping, with, unsurprisingly, similar to the PMS study, overall well-being, um, how stressed women are, and social support. And women mm. who are strongly socially supported have that village around them, which is how we evolved. We didn't evolve to parent alone. Um, who are helped to be healthy, who are helped to have enough sleep, who are helped with, you know, care, um, who aren't overwhelmed and aren't stressed, they're not judging their brains poorly. So -hmm. I guess the message is, (laughs) uh, there's a thousand other amazing things that the brain does, is our brains shift to become very pro-social, to be tuned in to social cues, particularly of our baby because mother nature intends our offspring to survive and so all of our focus is there and not on everything
0: else yeah so fascinating and so obviously uh, as we're working through the life stages the next um big change in our home hormones is when we come to um menopause what yeah. happens in our brain when those hormones drop off
1: yeah, that's really interesting because the studies have only just, like literally 2020, 2021, I think. Um, oh, wow. There's a there's a researcher, Lisa Moscone, who has published a couple of brain imaging studies, first first studies. 2017 was first study of pregnancy. First study of menopause was sort of 2020, um, looking to see what happens. And it's almost kind of like pregnancy or puberty in reverse. Um, our, the grey grayment of our brains actually expands you can think oh, about wow. it the Gaining of wisdom or the downloading of you know new life skills. So we're not seeing shrinkage and like you know we're not becoming these kind of wizened, old, dried up <laughs> hags who are, who are you know into middle life and you become a Karen or a Turf or a hag or whatever the current you know throwaway line is for, for women of a certain age. Um, actually, brains tend to slightly bounce back, so to speak. Um, we do see shifts in how brains metabolize and this may play out in terms of women do experience this, so, this, this experience of brain fog that we can actually pick up clinically whereby the, the, the inability to you know to pay attention and to remember, etc. But that that's kind of like a phase you go through and then it kind of levels out. So it's hmm. almost once the hormones kind of, they roller coaster and everything's kind of a bit chaotic and then it kind of levels out. Perhaps what is, a, what is a stronger influence on terms of women's perception of themselves as, as as related to some of the symptoms of menopause, which are regulated by the brain. So hot flashes, which some women find incredibly distressing. Hot flashes at night can disrupt your sleep. You disrupt your sleep one night when you're young, fit, and healthy. Mm. It's awful. You disrupt your sleep night after night, week after week, month after month. You can develop insomnia, sleep disorders. Mental health starts to go there's a whole lot going on and women around their 50s late 40s early 50s when you know you might have your last period or you're suffering from perimenopausal symptoms well i look at myself teenage children <laughs> aging parents living in other countries you kind of peak of your career there's a whole lot going on mm. um, so you know we're sort of starting to learn kind of how the brain sits, sits in the middle of of all of that and again good social support, focus on your health and well-being, etc. And menopause hormone therapy is an option for some women who don't have various risk factors for things like breast cancer. Um, but again, and, and I say, if you get to 50 and you can't put your big girl pants on and go and have a really good, clear conversation with a GP or find a women's health specialist, I don't know when you're going to do it. You wouldn't let your teenage daughters get away with oh, no one told me this is going to be this way. Um, educate yourself and find yourself a good woman's health specialist to kind of help help deal with, deal with that transition. Um, and, again, the messages that we get and we have through the ages about what happens when you, your reproductive years end, your fertility mm. starts to decline, there's not, there's not very many positive messages out there um,
0: about women of a certain age. Yeah, and so just to to leave people with things, is there anything else that we can be doing to really boost our brain health, you know, through these huge roller coasters of hormones that we'll be experiencing throughout our lives? Is there anything that we can be doing practically to really help with this?
1: I think everything that your mum, if you had the kind of mum that told you to do these things, which is get enough sleep, I think sleep's the foundation get plenty of physical exercise. Our brains evolved to move us through the world. So when we're moving them through the world, we're exercising our brains and our minds too. Um, and yeah. then good nutrition. So so the, the biological basics. And then I think what I I went into this book, not knowing a lot about women's health and assuming what's going to be about, it's going to be about hormones, 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 infancy, childhood, puberty, <laughs> Pregnancy, motherhood, menopause, ageing. Ageing is a time of great loneliness. Um, It wasn't always hormones. It was other people that are what I would say is the loudest voice in the crowd. The social architecture, the networks, is actually the greatest determinant of health and well-being and mental health and happiness um, at every point in the lifespan. That's what infants, that's what newborns need that's teenagers yeah. need the social tribe. They need to feel that they belong. New mothers need social the, the, the best thing we can do is to s- socially support a new mother. Um, menopausal woman, find you find go and find a new tribe and you know, stand around your little witchy coven together and cackle. <laughs> and then and you know, <laughs> people in aged care, you know, they are, they are suffering this kind of attrition of all of the people that they've known and I love just by living so long. Um And so Mm. I think that you can focus on all the biology and we can get into this sort of state like the kind of science dude bros of Silicon Valley, you know, focused on personal optimization and self-analysis and biohacking and, you know, peak performance. And it's so individualistic and self-focused that there's almost no space for other people, which I I think are, um, you know, the, the most important thing to support health mobbing. Well
0: i just love that that is such a great reminder for us all that the people that we surround ourselves with you know have more impact on us than we realize and obviously you know for some people it's really hard people are isolated but i think if you really bear that in mind it can be incredibly useful sarah thank you so much for joining me i really appreciate it i have learned an incredible amount this morning it was great fun thank you That was Dr. Sarah Mackay. She's a neuroscientist and the author of the Women's Brain book, The Neuroscience of Health, Hormones and Happiness. I'll put all the links in the show notes so you can check out Sarah's book and connect with her on social media to follow more of her work. I also wanna give you a heads up on a little special feature I'm planning for June. So every episode in June that I release will be on the theme of insiders. Each week I'll speak with people who've dug deep into or worked within the organizations whose business is our minds and bodies. We'll level up our knowledge and polish up our BS detectors to protect both ourselves and our wallets. I'm super excited to share this special little series that I've put together for you. So make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And if you haven't already, please leave me a review wherever you're listening. I'll be super grateful. It genuinely helps me out. It's just me out here creating these pods for you, which I absolutely bloody adore. So thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. I'm Ed Stott and I sincerely hope that's helpful.